right, so you see the big theme tonight up there in the uh, all caps. <clears throat> we looked at the last time we were in First Peter, which was two weeks ago, the idea of following in Christ's footsteps. And that was back in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, and uh, the end of verse 21, where it says that we've been left an example to follow in His steps, Christ's steps. And so the big statement tonight is following in Christ's footsteps applies to marriage as much as anywhere else. So we'll see that uh, tonight more and more as we study through this passage. Uh, First thing I want to say, though, is that submission is not a topic to avoid. We, of course in our day and age, don't like the word submission in our flesh, like our natural response is, ah, I don't want to do that. (laughs) And there are a few reasons why we have that response, and none of them are great reasons. So let's uh, think of this, think about this for just a little bit. Uh, What it means to submit is to be under the order or the arranging of another, to put yourself under the order or arranging of another. And there are a variety of submission relationships in Scripture. So I've given you the first part of the couplets here, where this is the one submitting to someone else. And so let's see if we can fill out any of those uh, before you, like, look them up or anything. Do you, can you think of every person is subject to who? Slaves are subject to who? Can you give me the person who is doing the ordering and the arranging on the other side. Who is that? Pick one and give me an answer. Okay, that's true. Well, that one actually goes um, here. Christians are subject to Christ. We have that in the New Testament. Okay. Good, good. Romans 13, every person is subject to the governing authorities. Governing authorities. Okay. Except, good, yep, slaves, be subject to your masters. We saw that in the last chapter, didn't we? Of uh, 1, Peter 3, or 1 Peter 2. Okay. Very good. <clears throat> Christians are subject to other Christians. That's in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 21. Be subject to one another or yield to one another. Okay. Good. What else? We've got three more. Young men, elders. That's 1 Peter 5, so we haven't quite gotten there yet, but yep, that's it. Young men, be subject to your elders. We've got angels and all things. (laughs) And the answer to both of those is the same. Christ, yeah, Christ. Okay, so in... uh, 1 Corinthians 15, all things are made subject to Christ. He's ruling and reigning until the end when He will hand things back over to the Father. I'll get to that passage eventually in our sermon series. But you see all these different relationships of being in subjection. And let's see, every person, so that's all of us in here tonight. Christians, Christians, that's all of us here tonight. Okay, we're all in these submission relationships already, and what we see in Peter is no different than what we see in Paul, is this concept of within the marital relationship, the wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. That's verse 1 tonight. The wives are to be submissive to their own husbands, because God established both the world and the home, 
He's also established order within the world and within the home. Can you imagine if God put no one in charge of anything? (laughs) If God established no authority? There you go. He just creates the world and there's no order. No one has any authority. It's just, hey, just go out there and, and, uh, you know, figure it all out. That it would be a disaster. God has established order and a lot of that is found in authority. And... uh, and it's just really important that we hear that reality. Because it's not just in the home, even though that's a big part of it. It's all throughout the world. There's authority, and that's established by God. So thoughts on the big general idea of submission and being in subjection to someone else. Okay. No one's walked out yet. That's good. (laughs) They wanted a king? Is that what you're talking about? Okay, yeah. Right, yeah, so when Israel was first established, um, you know, the Yahweh himself was the one leading Israel. And then over the course of time, he gave them judges, you know, and that went on for a while. And it was prophesied that they would do this, that eventually they said, you know what, we want to be like all the other nations. That was their foundation for wanting a king. Not because they were appealing to a good system that God had given them, because God didn't give them a king as their good system. But instead, they said, uh, we want to be like all the other nations with their kings. And so, God gave that to them. And just like with the prophecy, they were taxed, and they were treated harshly, and everything else. They were sent out to war and whatnot. Um, They got what they wanted, but not what they thought they were going to get. (laughs) So, yeah. Yep. Okay. Good still? All right. So now the question might come up. All right, so if God has established authority in the home, if God has set up the structures for how marital relationships are supposed to work, the husband is to lead and rule well, and the wife is to submit, what do you do with non-Christian husbands? That's quite the, quite the quagmire in a lot of situations, a lot of circumstances. Well, that's what Peter's addressing here. So look again at the text. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. So here we go. That's the scenario. That they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Chaste or chaste? There's no alternate pronunciation on that? Great. Chaste. All right. <clears throat> Just like paste. Chaste and paste. Okay, I can remember that now in the same way. All right. Yeah, unless you're talking about chastity, because it's not chastity, it's chastity. So, Right. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in a moment. But let's, let's lay out for the Christian woman who is married to a non-Christian man, how does this work? Well, the, the goal is stated quite clearly in the first verse. The goal is for the husband to be one to Christ, right? That he may be one. So that has to be the goal of the, uh, the wife. What, what do you think it means when it says without a word, though? He may be one without a word, because we aren't proponents of, what, what's the, how's it go? St. Francis, yeah, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, he said, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. That's bogus, right? Okay, that doesn't make any sense. So, but 
you might look at this verse and say, well, that's what he's saying. Well, how do we make sense of this? What do you think? Okay. Good. <laughs> you said it, not me. Andy, be, be careful what you say. Go ahead. Or <laughs> we're walking on eggshells. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, living a consistent life, having a, a consistent reputation. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, for sure. I think it's all those ideas. Um, yeah, without a word doesn't mean avoid evangelism with, with your non-Christian husband, right? We would never advise that. It's like, yeah, you want to communicate the gospel, uh, absolutely. But, uh, Diana, what did you say at the end there? Not, not preachy, yeah. I think there is something to that. Um, when I first got saved, I was 16. My mom had passed away. It was just me and my dad. My dad wasn't a believer. And so, obviously, not his wife, but still kind of in this dynamic where I'm under his headship in the home. I'm still in the home and living with him. And... I want him to be saved. I want him to be one to Christ. And that was a weird dynamic for a while because how can I, as his son, tell him what to do? And you ladies, if you've ever tried to, like, help your husband back up a trailer or something, you know how hard it is to tell them what to do, right? (laughs) Uh, Karen Jobes, uh, who wrote a good commentary on 1 Peter, so she's a lady. She said this. I thought this was a good quote. Here's a situation where silence is the more effective means of communication. <laughs> and in a lot of ways, uh, yeah, I think maybe it is. But the idea is that doesn't mean be totally silent. But kind of going back to what Andy said too, uh, quiet, peaceable, right? Um, wanting, wanting to show Him love in what you do. Like here in just, uh, what is it, verse 3 or verse 4? where the women are told to have a gentle and quiet spirit, that's the same idea, living peaceably, living in a way that fosters love in the home, not fosters hostility in the home, which can be really tough. Uh, And there are so many here who know it well. Um, Religion can foster hostility in a home where the spouses aren't on the same page. But it's seeking to do what you can in love to create an atmosphere of peace with the goal of winning the husband to Christ. Easy to exegete, very difficult to live, right? That's because there's so many scenarios that come up that are unique to that husband or wife, whoever's in that situation where it's like, well, how do we apply this? And that's where it gets really difficult, really, really difficult. But the goal, of course, is to constantly seek to win him to Christ. And he goes on to define the behavior That's verses 2 through 4. Again, in verse 2, chaste, that word chaste, not chast, chaste, and respectful behavior. So that word for chaste has to do with innocence and purity. It could say innocent or pure, 
Now, yours might, translation might. Does anyone else say anything besides chaste? Surely there's another translation besides chaste. Maybe not. Okay, pure. There you go. Pure. So they switched the words and they used pure. That's, yeah, that's good. Um, so what that means for the Christian wife is not manipulating her unbelieving husband, but being innocent in the way that she deals with her husband. Godly conduct, that's it. Being above reproach in her conduct with her husband. And respectful, this is the word that's tied to fear. It could say uh, fearful, but that would give us the wrong impression, not to be frightened of the husband, but to respect him, treating him with reverence because of his position that God's given him in your life as a, as a wife, because God has given him to you, and here you are, to treat him with reverence because of his position. Not just the relationship, treating the relationship with reverence, though that's important, treating the actual man with reverence, which again, can be incredibly difficult. Hard enough for women to do with Christian husbands. <laughs> and then you get a non-Christian husband and one who's more like uh, Nabal. Remember Abigail and Nabal? And it's like, well, okay, how do you respect that guy? Well, that's the high calling for a wife, and I don't envy those positions to be in. That's so difficult, so, so difficult. Not treating him like a child or treating him like someone stupid, but treating him with respect. Not hiding things from him, but treating him with respect. An attitude of respect. They, this is going back to, uh, look at chapter 2 again with me, verse 18, when I was talking to servants, when Peter was talking to servants, he says, servants or slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And the quote that I shared with you, I think this was from Wayne Grudem, uh, a healthy desire to avoid their displeasure. I, I like that quote. So you don't want to put his displeasure as like the primary thing. Obviously, you should seek to please God above everybody else. So, but it's a healthy desire to avoid his displeasure. I think that, that's what's being said here too, respectful behavior, seeking to honor him because he is the husband. It also goes on to say in verse 3 that the adornment should be humble and not external. It says, your, your adornment must not be, the NASB adds merely, it sh I don't think it should even say merely, your adornment must not be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. So the idea here is to prioritize the internal, not to avoid the external, but to prioritize the internal. Because someone might read this, and there are certainly people who do, who read this and say, okay, well, a woman can't wear gold jewelry. Well, if you're going to be consistent, a woman shouldn't wear clothes either, because it says clothes. <laughs> it says putting on a clothes. So the focus isn't on the external, but the focus is on the internal. It's not saying avoid these things, but it's saying that you should not prioritize those things. The focus has to be on the heart, okay? Um, yeah. I, here's a question that came up in my, in my study. I thought this was a, an interesting thought. Why do you think these wives in particular, who are living with husbands who are disobedient to the Word, why should these wives in particular reject the idea of external adornment as priority? 
Okay. So it, it could miscommunicate the gospel to their husband. That, okay, good. Okay, follow that line. Because where is this woman going without her husband? Well, she's going to church. Now, of course, it's not like this, but she's going with, to Christian fellowship, isn't she? <laughs> and if before she leaves, she's making herself look like she's looking for somebody, what does that communicate to the husband who's not going with her to Christian fellowship? I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, thought. And a consideration, again, that you get so many unique circumstances, and in a situation like that, you have to be so mindful of those things. So he says, don't let, it, don't let your focus be on the outside, but verse 14, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. So this is the source of beauty for the Christian woman. The source of beauty is the gentle and quiet spirit, the inner person, the spirit that God has saved and that God's developing and that God's sanctifying and that God is is using to change the way you live and the actions that flow through your life. And that can't be corrupted by anyone, your inner person. Look back at chapter 1, verse 23 with me, because there's a word that's used in both verses. It says in chapter 1, verse 23, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Now go back to chapter 3, verse 5. That word imperishable, or verse 4 rather, that word imperishable shows up again. The gentle and quiet spirit is imperishable. Same word that Peter uses. So just like you are born again through the imperishable word of God, this spirit that God is developing in you, gentle and quiet, Christ-like, that's imperishable. And you think of the first scenario, well, what, what hope do we get because we were born again through the imperishable word of God? It means that no one can mess that up. No one can reach in and make it perishable. No one can defile it. Well, the same thing for the Christian woman who's being sanctified by God, those things that He's bringing about through your life, no one can defile that because that's God's work in you. And that's a lot of hope there too, right? Isn't there? And who else is known for having a gentle heart in Scripture? Jesus. Jesus Himself. Yeah, that's um, a book came out last year called Gentle and Lowly, and it's based on, the, the title is based on one verse, the only verse where Christ ever said what His heart was like, for I am gentle and lowly at heart. Isn't that amazing? Out of all the things He could have said, Jesus said gentle. <laughs> I, I think that's just absolutely amazing. He made the world. He spoke the world into existence. He is Lord over all, but He's gentle at heart. Wow. Just as Jesus is our ultimate source of rest and peace, we should make it our aim, not just Christian wives, but all Christians should make it our aim to be a source of rest and peace for others, to impart to them the peace of God through the Word of God. And so, of course, great application there for the Christian women in this situation. And he doesn't stop there. He keeps going into verse 5, and he brings in examples, brings up the former times and the holy women who hoped in God. And he said they adorned themselves, not with that external stuff, but by being submissive. They adorned themselves with submission 
to their own husbands. In verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened with any fear. So there were women in Israel's history, and Sarah had a particular reputation in Jewish history of being a woman who was submissive. And commentators, you know, they look at this from all different angles. What is it, why is he bringing up Sarah here? Is it because she often had to obey Abraham when he was being a big dummy? Well, that's probably part of it. Um, or was it because, you know, she just got up and left back in Genesis 12 when God called Abram and Sarai and she just went? Uh, I think it's probably all the above, right? Just generally speaking, we see examples from Sarah's life where she was uh, a faithful wife to Abram. And she was not afraid of submission. He brings that up in verse 6. She was not frightened with any fear. Kind of a <laughs> weird, weird way of phrasing that. She was not frightened with any fear. Uh, it didn't scare her to submit to Abraham. But she did it out of faith. And fear seems to be a, uh, a pretty major issue when discussing gender roles. It's something I'm coming across quite a bit in the 1 Corinthians 11 study. Just a lot of fear by, and I'm not saying just women who are in that position, but I'm saying I think all Christians are afraid to talk about this in a lot of ways. Why do you think that is? I think it's very, very pertinent that we talk about fear because it's in our text and because it seems to be in our day and age, a fearful thing to talk about gender roles. Why is that? But isn't that every text of Scripture? <laughs> I mean, it's like all kinds of sins are talked about in Scripture. Why is this one? So why are we afraid to talk about it as Christians? <laughs> Let's get to the heart of the issue here. <laughs> so, but what are we afraid of? Okay, all right. Rejection. Rejection by who? Culture. Okay, by the world. Let me let you in on a little secret. You're already rejected by the world. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, say that again. Okay, afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. Yeah. Um, Andy, did your faith hurt someone's feelings on Saturday? You want to share that story? We have, we have extra time. Share that story. So, so how did you process that afterwards?
where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. So, would, now looking back, would you say, because you just experienced it four or five days ago, where you hurt someone's feelings, and then they hurt your feelings because the whole thing just kind of blew up, is that worthy of fear and being frightened? And why not? Yep, our life is a vapor. So, we need to be careful not about talking about truth, but we need to be careful about avoiding truth. (laughs) We need to be careful about letting our fear get in the way of talking about truth. And uh, yeah, of course, gender roles and stuff is a big conversation in our culture right now, but that shouldn't be a cause for fear. That should be opportunity for us. I mean, Jesus has told us the world hate is going to hate you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. So what do you expect? <laughs> What's your expectation here? Uh, that we'll all just live in Mayberry together and be happy? That's not happening. It may have, we may have had a glimpse of that, but that's not what's going to happen in the end. Steve. I was going to say, Don't worry. 